This is Health Call Live. We're glad you're listening, but don't be afraid to call and ask your question on the air. It's free, non-invasive, and best of all, you don't have to wear an exam gown. Now, back to health and wellness correspondent Lee Kelso. And we are going to follow up this half hour on a topic that also comes right out of the headlines this week. The CDC sent out a a warning, really an advisory this week, saying that there's a problem with our children who have sickle cell anemia. They're just not getting the amount of treatment they needed, screening and treatment in general. And then the American Red Cross is also concerned that we are having a significant shortage of blood donors that affects sickle cell victims. And so all of that put together, I reached out to Dr. Scott Myers to tell us more about this. He is a pediatric hemocology oncology specialist, formerly was the director of sickle cell disease program at Georgetown University, is currently the assistant professor of IU School of Medicine and also at the University of Chicago. And uh, which hospital are you calling us from this morning, doctor? Oh, hi. Hi, Mr. Kelso. So nice to be with you. And I'm at uh, Ascension St. Vincent today. Okay, on the floor at St. Vincent's. Good. So uh, tell me about the situation with blood shortages and sickle cell anemia, and then we're going to back into a little more about this disease, because quite frankly, it's something I don't know much about. Well, we know that blood donors decrease significantly during the pandemic. Um, I think that's, you know, public knowledge. And what's interesting is that among um, donors of um, African-American illnesses such as sickle cell disease, what we find is that there is more likely to be a match among donors of the same ethnicity. And the reason for that is that there are red blood cell markers that people are familiar with, such as blood type A and blood type B, but there are also a lot of minor blood markers or blood types which normally are of little concern clinically, but these can cause problems with transfusion incompatibility. And simply stated, donors of the same ethnicity as the recipient are more likely to be an ideal match. So nationally, there is an increased need for blood donors in general, and especially those um, who are minorities because their blood type is um, more, more specific in some cases. So we just need more African-American blood donors to step forward in general. And part of the reason is when you have this sickle cell anemia, you are often getting these transfusions. Tell me about how often that's likely to be a problem. Well, for most patients with sickle cell disease, we're able to treat it effectively with medication. There have been major advances in medication uh, in the recent years. Um, so therefore, blood transfusion is needed much less frequently uh, for a patient who's getting uh, preventative care in sickle cell disease. But in the case of an emergency, such as a stroke or a um, severe pneumonia, they need emergency transfusion. And sometimes that can be an exchange transfusion, which requires seven or eight units of blood. So typically we would use blood only for complications and emergencies because we're able to treat it preventatively with medications. But when we need it, we need it. And that's what's important. Yeah. And I don't think, at least I didn't know until I started looking into this, that uh, these kids can have a pretty rough ride. You just mentioned stroke. We're not talking about stroke in senior citizens. We're talking about strokes in children. Yes. 
correct. And historically, patients with sickle cell disease have had significant challenges with both quality and quantity of life, or the length of life, if you will. And recently, though, with these new treatments, new medications, we're able to treat it much, much more effectively. And they have nearly normal life expectancy and quality of life. Um, you know, we see our patients with sickle cell disease going to college and pursuing professions just like um, patients who don't have any disease. And so there have been major advances, and that's been encouraging. Sickle cell refers to a change in the shape of the hemoglobin. And uh, so that is the uh, your red blood cells carry oxygen to your tissues. But what goes wrong in kids with sickle cell? Well, normally a red blood cell should be, uh, as you said, a normal red blood cell should be like a soft, round water balloon that slides through the blood vessels. But with sickle cell disease, when they get sick or stressed, their sickles, their blood cells will become sickle shape, hence the term sickle cell disease, and that creates sort of a log jamming in the blood vessels, which can cause pain and in the long term can cause some organ damage. Now, as far as the biochemistry behind it, it has to do with a mutation that causes a change in one of the amino acids of the um, hemoglobin, uh, but but simply stated, uh, they become sickled under stress, and that creates log jamming problems. Uh, in the blood vessels. And it's a genetically inherited disease. So if both of my parents have the uh, likely or have the anomaly that makes uh, them carriers, then their children have an increased risk. Um, and when you're treating these kids, doc, what do you what are the what's their life like? What do they see if it's severe? What kind of pain are we talking about? Just give me a picture of what these kids go through. Well, with the preventative medications, the frequency and severity of pain crises are much less. But the most common complication is simply a pain crisis. Uh, when those cells start to come in that sickle shape and, again, have that sort of log jamming process in the small blood vessels, that becomes very painful because oxygen isn't getting to the tissues enough. And so we're able to treat that effectively with oxygen and pain medicines and um, sometimes transfusion. Um, in severe cases, but the most common complication is just terrible pain, uh, which we're able to treat with um, opioids and strong pain medications in the short term, but again, we try to transition to preventing it with um, aggressive treatment as an outpatient. So, I mentioned earlier that uh, you attend uh, University of uh, Illinois Chicago Hospitals, and you work with uh, a lot of the urban community. Um, Tell me a little bit about the hesitancy in that community to interact with the healthcare system and how that affects blood donations and, and just general health issues. Well, I think that it's important that we as, as the medical community earn the trust of, of, of patients in all communities, you know, especially the African-American community, so that they know that um, the medical community has their best interest at heart and is fully honest and transparent with them. And what you find in tertiary care centers like University of Illinois is that we do have a large system and those relationships 
are very su- successful. Uh, but uh, historically, of course, there have been many cases where there was not that good faith trust established, and so that's why there is hesitancy um, among many people to, to trust the medical community. And again, it's, it's incumbent on the medical community to, to earn that trust. And so how do you see that play out? What impact does that have on health of African Americans? Well, of course, if there um, any patient who doesn't come to care because they're you know concerned about their privacy and everything being honored, you know, of course, then that's going to be worrisome in terms of not getting the necessary care that they need. Um, But again, in my experience at the large centers, we're able to establish good relationships. So that's how we overcome that, that fear and lack of trust is through, through relationships, um, because that's, that's where trust is established. And that's one of the reasons that uh, they're putting out this call for African-Americans to donate blood is because, as you mentioned earlier, there's just a better uh, a match for kids who need this transfusion in the sickle cell community, kind of feeding into that whole bigger picture of the blood shortage. There's something else going on that you've seen personally in that work in the hospital, and that is uh, imagine a three-year-old coming in for care because they've experienced a fentanyl overdose. How does that happen? We're going to talk about some of the issues around, and Dr. Myers is working with um, several programs to try and bring that to our attention. So we'll do that when we continue here on the Health Call Live Radio Hour on WOWO. Welcome back to Health Call Live, where health information is free and the stethoscope is never cold. We're here to answer your questions at 447-1190. Now, back to health and wellness correspondent, Lee Kelso. And we're also back with Dr. Scott Myers. He is with us this uh, half hour talking about initially sickle cell anemia and the need for African Americans to donate blood, helping resolve that crisis. But uh, also, I want to transition here into discussion of fentanyl. Um, Dr. Myers, you told me recently that you treated a three-year-old for a fentanyl overdose. How did that happen? Well, it's interesting. Sometimes when you see medical reports on the news, I feel like things are taken out of context. But with the fentanyl crisis, everything we're hearing really is accurate, and indeed it's probably understated in terms of how severe the crisis is. And um, sometimes children see fentanyl as candy, and they just put it in their mouth and swallow it, and then that's it. Then, and, and if they don't get Narcan, which is the reversal agent, um, then they can succumb to that um, drug overdose. And that, that's what we're seeing happen frequently. Um, and that's, uh, it's been a, a significant crisis, as you know. So what happened in the case you treated? Did that three-year-old make it? And how did they, did they come across it in the home? Well, uh, in this particular example, um, they had come across it in the home, and then by the time they got to the emergency room, it was it was too late. The, 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 they were not able to be resuscitated, which is why paramedics and police in Allen County, for example, routinely carry Narcan so that they can use it as a reversal agent if they come across somebody who's overdosed. Yeah, and I've just 
was made aware that there are these things called naloxone boxes or naloxo box at three locations around town. They're just on the wall of a building. So if you have an emergency need for Narcan, you can go there and, and get it quickly and uh, no questions asked. It's just, you know, hanging there on the side of the wall at these locations. It's shocking that we've come to that point. But uh, fentanyl overdose deaths in Indiana reached a record. I'm reading here that uh, we are looking at huge numbers, over 3,000 people nationwide, more people dying of fentanyl overdose than traffic accidents. So you're involved, I think, on a state level, are you not, doctor, with the governor's program? Yes, we do review of uh, pediatric suicides and drug overdoses. Uh, both, I'm involved both at Allen County level and also at the state level. Yeah, and I recently saw an interesting article from New England Journal of Medicine that showed how that drug overdose in children and adolescents has increased cause of death from seventh most likely to the third in the past few years, and it's becoming worse. You know, each month based on the fentanyl data that we see. Yeah, that's shocking. The third leading cause of death, uh, a drug overdose. And fentanyl, I understand now, has gone through quite a few changes. So it, it was a drug that was used for pain control. And then the raw ingredients to make it are coming into often Mexico, where it's being milled in, in little tablets that, that look like other popular drugs on the street. And the quality control is terrible. So how does that play out in an overdose scenario? What are we seeing with young people on how that is being used and the impact it can have? Well, what's interesting is that I always say um, the drug cartels don't submit to FDA regulation, right? So we, when you get a, a fentanyl or any kind of um, street drug, you simply don't know how concentrated it is. And oftentimes I think what happens is um, dealers and drugs, which of course I'm not intimately familiar with, but but from the data I've seen, uh, these drug dealers oftentimes use more and more concentrated forms of fentanyl because that way they can sell more drugs for a higher profit. It's, it's cheaper for them to make it that way. Um, and sometimes they even use car fentanyl, which is known as elephant tranquilizer, which is extremely uh, toxic and potent. And so a lot of these street drugs, even oxycodone that people can get in the street, are spiked with these much, much more concentrated forms of fentanyl, which can be immediately lethal. Yeah, I just was reading about a uh, concern about something called rainbow fentanyl. Have you heard of this? Uh, yes, I'll let you explain it because you probably know more about that particular example than I. But um, uh, it's um, it, it's available in so many forms, and again, they're, they're usually uh, lethal if if not taken properly. Yeah, so so the report I read says that in Chicago, Detroit, and other areas, and so obviously it's going to drift through our area soon enough, rainbow, rainbow fentanyl is now being distributed. It is made in very bright colors, and it supposedly is formulated to have a very low dose of fentanyl. So you, you get the buzz or the fentanyl response, but at a much lower level. So it's almost like a starter level of fentanyl is how it's it's being distributed, and so it's it's safer, it's fun, it's bright colored, it's cheap. But again, we come back to the issue of quality control. You, there's no regulation; nobody's paying attention. So you.
you might try some of this rainbow fentanyl and, and have a good time at a gathering, a party, or who knows. And then the next time around, uh, you get another pill and you've got a problem on your hands. So, uh, you know, you don't have any control over what that dosage is going to be. And what worked for you and was a fun time last week could be the last dose you take today. So, pretty frightening in the discussion of that rainball fentanyl. Um, somebody here has sent me a text question, doctor, asking, is prescribed fentanyl okay? Is that, are people still prescribing it? Well, uh, yes. And in proper context, yes, the answer is um, pharmaceutical opioids, whether it be fentanyl or morphine or oxycodone, are safe as prescribed by a physician because there you do have quality control. Whereas if you get um, fentanyl from a drug cartel or a drug dealer, then uh, of course it would be ill-advised to take their advice on what is safe and fun. <laughs> you know, I don't think we should trust the, the drug dealers, right? That's that's kind of crazy to hear have them talk about what is safe and fun. So try the colored version. This is pretty crazy if you think about it. Yeah, no kidding. So uh, how often is fentanyl prescribed? Why would I? Is there some reason that you would use fentanyl over or uh, one of the other opioids? Well, oftentimes fentanyl is given as a patch. You can have a little patch on your arm, and it's long-acting, like 24 hours or 72 hours. So for patients who do have chronic pain conditions, that kind of treatment may well be appropriate. So so simply stated, it's, it's a common um, uh, use for patients with significant chronic pain. What are you seeing in the as you study overdose records as uh, part of this, the program with the state? Are there any patterns that are emerging? Anything you're seeing there that we need to be aware of? Um, well, I think the biggest pattern in terms of, of, of fentanyl use is just that it's becoming more and more widely available uh, for recreational use. Uh, from people selling it on the street. Um, as far as clinical use, I'm not seeing any trends. It, if anything, it's being prescribed less because of the concern of addiction and abuse. Um, so, and so that's a um, you know, concern. Sometimes pain is actually undertreated because some physicians are afraid to prescribe opioids. So clinically, it's used yes, less, but, but on the street, of course, it's more, more widely available. Yeah, you bet. And uh, tell me about Narcan. I have heard that it's almost a, a, a miraculous thing to watch somebody uh, to be totally incapacitated in, in an overdose scenario, and then you uh, apply the Narcan, and they come around pretty quickly. Is Can you give me a description of how that looks and how that works? Yes, Narcan is the trade name for naloxone. So Narcan and naloxone are the same same medication. And the way it works is that it basically removes the opioid, the fentanyl, from the opioid receptors in our body. And so it is like magic. The second that it's in the bloodstream, it will remove that fentanyl uh, from the opioid receptor and the patient's as good as new in terms of not having the effect of the opioid. Pretty amazing stuff. Uh, anything you want to add? We've got about a minute left for you, Doctor. Anything you want to wrap up with? Uh, no, I just appreciate your attention. I think that the uh, fentanyl crisis and um, drug abuse goes 
along with the mental health um, you know needs that we have in our community and so it's really just essential that we uh, you know be aware um, to people's mental health and connectedness and and just let people know that if they need pain medication go to a doctor never buy it on the street yeah absolutely to that one thank you very much to dr scott myers appreciate you being here with us today Okay, thank you. You bet. Uh, so keep that in mind as uh, kids are back in college. Uh, you know, mom, dad, grandparents, no harm putting that bug in their ear. You know, you're going to sound like that old fuddy-duddy, but, uh, you know, it's okay to say, hey, uh, you know, just if while you're having fun and at a party, uh, please don't take anything. I care about you. You don't want to take that chance. Uh, just the, the nature of these meds and how deadly they are, and it can take only one. That's all it takes. Something odd. So there you are. That's a program for this week. I hope I will hear from you via either the text line here at WoWo or email. You can hit us up at the website, healthcall.live. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to Health Call Live. Watch a recording of today's program on the Health Call Facebook page or on the web at www.healthcall.live. Drop us a line to recommend a guest or suggest a topic for a future broadcast. Join us next Saturday at 9 a.m. for another edition of Health Call Live on WoWo 1190 a.m. and 1075 FM. Podcasts by Federated Media.